Let's pray together. Father, we pray that through your word, you would teach us what we have just sung together. We pray that you would teach us to be still and to know that you are God. We ask that you do it in Jesus' name. Amen. This week, I had the privilege of hearing a man's testimony, and he related that as a college student, he was a Trotskyite Marxist. And uh, he had grown up exposed somewhat to Christianity. His mother was a Roman Catholic, but he had uh, decidedly rejected that and embraced this very radical approach to the world and uh, basically a desire for revolution. And he went on to relate how he visited a church because he was interested in this girl. So the only reason he came to church is because he was interested in this young lady who demanded that he go to church if she were to spend any time with him. And then he, he related how he came into this church and there was this evident sense of God in the place. And he said it terrified him. And he hated it. But through that experience of the presence of God and the fear of judgment, this man was saved. Some of you know the gentleman I'm describing. His name is Michael Haken, and he now teaches at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I would ask you to pray for what he described. I would, this is not something that we conjure by seriousness or stories or anything like that. This is something that the Lord can choose to bestow on this place if he so pleases. And I would ask you to ask him to do it. Ask him to visit us, to show up and make it so that those of us who know him are rejoiced by the fragrance of life to life and those who are here who don't know him, that they might be terrified, that they might feel their urgent need for Jesus. I would invite you also to open your Bible this morning to Psalm 75, and we are going to be looking at Psalms 75 and 76. And these two Psalms, they show God in Psalm 75 announcing that he has come to execute justice. He has arrived for judgment. And then in Psalm 76, he actually shows up and does it. So these two psalms, they, they come together, and we're going to do something different. Uh, we're going to do something again that I've never done before. I don't have a prop this time. I'm not going to throw something, you know, off the stage or anything like that. Uh, but what we're going to do is we're going to walk through these two psalms simultaneously because they, they really have a parallel structure. They both open with a statement about God's people and how they respond to God. So that's verse 1 in Psalm 75 and verses 1 through 3 in Psalm 76. And then they, have, uh, they both have a unit um, that describes God coming for judgment. So that's verses 2 through 5 in Psalm 75, and it's, it's verses 4 through 6 in Psalm 76. That's then complemented by a second unit uh, where in Psalm 75 the psalmist praises God 
for his justice that he's going to execute. And then in Psalm 76, he describes God as a terrifying judge. And then both psalms are concluded. Psalm 7510 uh, concludes with a statement about um, what God is going to do to the, the wicked and the righteous. And then Psalm 76 concludes with, with advice to the wicked about how they ought to respond. So um, we're going to walk through these and, and look at each, each corresponding unit together. And as we start, uh, I want to say that um, as we consider these psalms, we really want to try to place ourselves in the presence of Almighty God. We want to ask him to come among us. We want to ask him to cause us to feel what the psalmist is describing. It's difficult. It's difficult to be proud in the presence of greatness. And in these psalms, God comes in greatness, and he means to humble us. Whether we're believing or unbelieving, God means for us to be humble. It's difficult to be proud. It's also stupid to be proud in the presence of greatness. So let me invite you to look with me at Psalm 75. Um, let, me, let me just say a word about the superscription, that little heading that's right next to the word, uh, the, the numbers 75. It says, to the choir master, according to do not destroy a psalm of Asaph, a song. Do not destroy. That's a good prayer. Before the almighty judge, you know, if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, this is a good thing for you to pray. This is a good way for you to respond. Please, God, don't destroy me. And then let me, let me draw your attention to Psalm 76. The superscription there is almost exactly the same. The only difference is the words do not destroy are replaced with, with stringed instruments. Everything else is exactly the same. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of Asaph, a song. Then look at 75.1. And here what we have are the people of God doing what we've just done together. They say here in Psalm 75.1, We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. Um, this word rendered give thanks here in Psalm 75.1 is rendered praise in Psalm 76.10. So this word could mean either thanks or praise. And, and it's translated in different ways at different points. So thanks and praise are what the people of God give to the one who is worthy. And how do they do that? Look at what verse 1 says next. We recount your wondrous deeds. And, and what I'd like for you to do is, is to think by analogy. Think, think of recounting wondrous deeds by analogy to what we do, let's say, with um, athletes. So um, if I were to talk to you about how Steph Curry, one time in April of 2015, made 77 three-pointers in a row, I would be singing his praise, wouldn't I? Because I would, be, I would be recounting his wondrous deeds. And then on that occasion, he took 100 shots. He made 94 out of 100 three-pointers. I was reading a, a sports writer on this who said, I can't do anything 77 times in a row. He said, if I tried to close my car door 77 times in a row, I would get my fingers in there three or four times. And this sports writer also said, Denny will like this, he said that making 77 three-pointers in a row is 
cuckoo redonk, you know? You sort of put this Denny Burke word, redonkulous, together with cuckoo, and you got cuckoo redonk. Well, if we can say this reverently, God's mighty deeds in creation and salvation. I mean, I don't know if we ought to call them cuckoo redonk or not, but who would have imagined this world? Who would have imagined creation? Who would have expected for things to be the way that they are? Who could improve upon what God has done? And who will not fear him if they really encounter him? This is why the people of God are saying, we give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. And then we recount your wondrous deeds. Look at, look at 76, verses 1 through 3. In Judah, God is known. People who know God respond this way. And then notice how they refer to your name in 75.1. We give thanks to your name. 76.1. His name is great in Israel. This is saying God has a great reputation because think, people are thinking about him. They're contemplating him and then they're talking about him. And not only is he known, his name is great. Look at verse 2. His abode has been established in Salem. Salem is like a short form for Jerusalem. And what they're saying is God has taken up residence in the temple in Jerusalem. And thus, the rest of the verse, his dwelling place in Zion. God is known and God is present. And where God is known and present he protects. Look at verse 3. There in Zion, in Jerusalem, he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. We just sang about this in Psalm 46. Um, he, he brings ruin on the earth. He burns the chariots with fire. All of these, these implements that are used for war, even battle itself, God is going to put an end to it. This is, this is a statement that you can refer to as eschatological. That is, it refers to the end time. There is coming a day when God is going to finally and completely put an end to all war. And, and there, that's when the Bible describes you're going to beat the swords into plowshares. You're not going to need weapons anymore. Nobody's going to need an arsenal anymore. Because anybody whose heart is inclined to do violence or to seize plunder, they're going to be in hell. And everybody else's hearts are going to be so changed that nobody's going to want to plunder. Nobody's going to want to fight. Nobody's going to need any more weapons. That's what's being celebrated here in Psalm 76, verses 1 through 3. So God is present. God is known. And he protects. Um, so, so those are corresponding units, I think, in Psalm 75 and Psalm 76. And we, we who are here who know God want to say to any of you who are here who don't know God, don't you want to know him? Isn't this what you're looking for? Aren't you looking for someone who can put an end to conflict? Aren't you looking for someone in whose presence you want to sing his praise? Isn't that why you watch college football? I was, I was thinking about this, and, and um, I, I think 
the, the, the fact that people recount, they lo- we love to recount the heroic deeds done on the football field or on the basketball court or on the baseball field. We love to talk about those things. And that's because there's something in us that loves to celebrate greatness. Our, our love for sports is, is ultimately a sort of variation on our love for God's awesome displays of power. Now, these next two units in 75, 2 through 5, and 76, 4 through 6 also correspond to each other. If you were here last week, you know that in Psalm 74, verses 9 and 10, the psalmist is lamenting a, 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 a flagrant uh, violation of the temple, and he's asking the question, how long? How long is the foe to scoff? And it's like the answer comes in 75, verse 2 here where the Lord says, at the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. At the set time that I appoint. The, the Bible says, Hebrews 9, that the Lord, it, it, he says, it, the, the author of Hebrews says, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that to face judgment. God has appointed a time And when that time comes, the books will be opened, the dead will be raised, and the king will be enthroned, and the final verdict will come down. I think the Lord is describing this here. Look at verse 3. The the ESV renders this when the earth totters, but the the NAS is is, is more, um, more literal. It says, it says the earth is going to melt and all its inhabitants. The earth is going to melt. When everyone stands before God, the defiled land is going to dissolve before him. The inhabitants of the world are going to melt away before him. And, and the word used there for the earth and the, its inhabitants melting, it's the same word used to describe both in the book of Exodus and in the book of Joshua, the inhabitants of Canaan melting before, their hearts melted before Israel. And, and I think that's a significant use of that term because what comes after that judgment, that great white throne judgment? Well, it's the new heavens and new earth, isn't it? And, and what does that new heavens and new earth fulfill? Well, it fulfills the land of promise that Israel conquered, doesn't it? And so, so just as Israel conquered the land and the wicked, their hearts melted, so also at that judgment, everything's going to melt, and then God is going to give to his people the fulfillment of the land of promise. Don't you want to be one who inherits that land? Don't you want to be there and not melted? And then the Lord says, when the earth melts, I think, and all its inhabitants, he says, it is I who keeps steady its pillars. Selah. The Lord is describing the way that he is the Lord of all creation. He is the one who keeps everything stable. He is the one who has measured the pillars of the earth. He has established the pillars of the earth, and he ensures that those pillars, metaphorically speaking, that hold up the earth remain in place. And then comes a warning, and there are going to be three things warned against here in verses 4 through 6. And as we read these, these verses, let me encourage you not 
to think in terms of those wicked people out there. Let me encourage you to look unflinchingly in the mirror as we read these verses. Uh, as Jordan uh, prayed earlier, he, he referenced this statement in Proverbs chapter 6 where uh, Solomon writes, there are six things that the Lord hates. Has this landed on you? God hates this? There are six things that the Lord hates. And then the first thing listed, haughty eyes. Look at, look at Psalm 75, verse 4. The Lord, I think, speaks here. Notice he has said there in verse 3, it is I who keep steady its pillars. Verse 4, I say to the boastful, do not boast. This is, this is answering in some ways Psalm 73 because in Psalm 73, in verse 3, when the psalmist says, I was envious of the arrogant, the word rendered arrogant is the same term here rendered boastful. And, and so in a, in a way, the psalmist is, is relating. It's the same psalmist, Asaph, and he's relating how I was tempted to, to, to envy these boastful people. And now when the Lord rises for judgment, he's saying to the boastful, do not boast. Where do boasts come from? Boasts come from our hearts. What makes boasts come out of our hearts? Pride makes boasts come out of our hearts. Where does pride come from? Pride comes from us thinking that the advantages that we've enjoyed are due to something that we did. Pride comes from us thinking that the successes that we've had are due to somehow our prowess or our efforts or the good fortune that has come our way. It's because of how good we are. That's why we think we're proud. That's why we're proud. And the Lord is saying, none of that, none of that. And then he continues, here's your second thing. I say to the boastful, do not boast, that's first. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Now this is, this is figurative language. And um, if you've been here, we've talked about this as we've gone through the Psalms because we see it all over the place. You see it in, in, in the reading uh, that Jordan read in 1 Samuel 2. Um, think in terms of a herd of rams. And you've got these male rams, and the males in the herd, they want to establish dominance. And the way that they establish dominance is by being the biggest, baddest ram who can subdue all the other male rams. And so they smash each other with their horns until... Until it's decided, okay, we're all going to submit to that guy, and he's the alpha male. And then what that guy does is he lifts up his horn. And he shows by his posture, by his demeanor, that he's the man. And the Lord is saying, he's saying, you know there are equivalents in human behavior. There are ways that all of us are inclined to lift up the horn, to act like we got this. We got this all together. And the Lord is saying, don't speak. Don't boast. Don't speak like you're responsible for all the good things that you've enjoyed. And don't act like it. Don't lift up your horn. And then I think this next thing, look at, look at the third thing here in verse 5. Actually, the second thing is repeated. Do not lift up your horn on high. And then thirdly, or speak with haughty neck. This idea of speaking with a haughty neck, I think it, it's getting at your mannerisms. 
the Lord knows us. I didn't put that piece of paper there. I don't know how that got there. Sorry. The Lord knows us. And, and if you've paid attention, if you've looked at people, you know how this works, don't you? You know how somebody, they can, they can be saying things that sound humble, but everything about their mannerisms, their, their, the disposition of their bodies, the, 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 the nonverbals are all communicating pride, haughty neck. And the Lord is saying, don't do it. Now, let's look at the corresponding section of Psalm 76. And this is going to give us, I mean, the psalmist in Psalm 75 is about to give us some reasons not to do it, but this is also reasons to pursue humility. Look at verse 4 of Psalm 76. The psalmist says, glorious are you. The word glorious here, it, it could be translated shining. It could be translated radiant. It's the idea that, that God is just emanating this awesome light. Glorious are you. And then he goes on, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. So I don't know when the last time you had the opportunity to visit mountains was, but mountains are obviously imposing. And there are whole ecosystems in those mountains, things we never imagined, things we don't often think of, things that are surprising and terrifying, and it's amazing how they live up there. And, and the psalmist is saying, God is more majestic than the mountains and all the beasts that inhabit them. And then he goes on to describe the result of God's majesty. God comes in resplendent light. And the psalmist says here in verse 5, The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. So courageous warriors who had plundered others, they're undone. They're triumphed over. He continues there in verse 5, They sank into sleep. That means they died. God showed up in awesome, resplendent majesty, and people are struck dead. All the men of war, he continues in verse 5, were unable to use their hands. Your hands in the Bible, are, are uh, it's like a way of talking about your power. And so these stout-hearted, mighty men of valor who get things done with their hands, they can't find their hands. They can't use their hands because God has come on the scene. And then look at verse 6, at your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. Literally, both rider and horse fell fast asleep. Again, the Lord killed them. What this is saying is that when God comes to judge, neither courage, stout-heartedness, nor physical strength, hands, nor the fastest steed you can find, horse and rider, will enable anyone to stand against him. There is no escaping God's justice. And there is no way that anyone can physically overpower God to keep him from applying that justice. Now let's go back to Psalm 75, and in verses 6 through 9, the psalmist is going to help us. He's going to help us by explaining why we shouldn't boast, and arguing for humility. So we want to we hear this, don't we? We need this. 
verse 6. He says, For not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. Now, Notice how verse 4, do not lift up your horn, and then verse 5, do not lift up. Same term here at the end of verse 6, lifting up. And this is really similar to 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10, where, where repeatedly Hannah says, it's the Lord who makes high and makes low. And that's what the psalmist is getting at here. Not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes Lifting up, verse 7, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. I think what the psalmist is saying is something like this. Don't think highly of yourself because you were born in the east, or let's say trained in the east. Don't think highly of yourself because you were born in the west or trained or established your dominance in the west or in the wilderness. Where you come from is irrelevant If you're going to be lifted up, it's because the Lord lifts you up. What this is saying is that the advantages that you enjoy, the opportunities that you've had in your life, this is due to God's goodness to you. The successes that you've attained, the battles you've won or the grades you've gotten or the way you look or whatever it is that's good about you that tempts you to think, man, I'm really something here. The psalmist is saying all of that comes from God. It's, it's, it's similar to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, when he says, we have nothing that we've not received. We have nothing that we've not received. So there's your first argument for humility and your explanation of why you shouldn't boast. You can't take credit for anything good that you have. This is all God's goodness to you. Here's your second argument for humility, encouragement to humility. Look at verse 8. In the hand of the Lord, there is a cup. Uh, The the Bible regularly speaks of the cup of God's wrath. And there's a sort of uh, a a set of images behind this that informs this cup of God's wrath. Uh, The idea is that the, the deeds that we do are like the fruit of our lives. So in the same way that you plant a fruit tree or a a, a grapevine or something, and that thing is going to get, give off fruit. The, the vine, the grapevine is going to give off fruit. In the same way, you've got a human who's alive. He's going to give off fruit in the sense that he's going to do things. And, and what this imagery assumes is that God has harvested the deeds of our lives as though they were grapes, and then he's put the grapes in the wine press. And then he's trodden out the wine press, and he's taken out all that grape juice, and then he's fermented it. And the grape juice now is fermented to full strength. And he's filled up the cup. Look at verse 8 there. In the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed. And he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Do you know what this is figuratively saying? This is figuratively saying that those who do not repent of their sin, the wicked of the earth... Those who do not flee to the Savior. I mean, think how merciful God is being here. I'm going to put forward my own son, Jesus, and he will take your penalty for you on your behalf. And all you have to do is turn away from all those things that if you don't turn away from, I'm going to judge you for. And you're going to experience the consequences of. And now these people that refused Christ... These people that persisted in unrepentant rebellion against the living God. God has harvested all their deeds. 
and the wine is mixed full strength. And I don't know if you've ever, I've never seen this really. I can imagine in my my mind foaming wine. You know, I'm not a wine drinker. (laughs) We don't do wine. But so I don't know what it is that makes wine foam. But these people knew what it was. Here's the point. You will suffer the full measure of God's justice for everything you have ever done. That ought to terrify you. If you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, you should be so terrified by this that you should flee to Christ. If you can take stock of your life, if you can take stock of every one of your misdeeds, I don't even want to begin to think about all my sin. It is innumerable. It's got to be finite, but it almost feels infinite, doesn't it? We sin so constant. We sin when we're not trying to sin. We can go into situations and we can think, I'm going to try to be an agent for peace here. And before we know it, the thing has exploded and we're feeling this wrath within us. What has happened? When, when he says he pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs, he is saying that the wicked will not escape justice for any one of their sins. Why is the psalmist telling us this? He wants us to repent. He wants people to humble themselves before the living God. He wants people to be terrified of the righteous judge. Look at the corresponding section in Psalm 76, starting in verse 7, where there's almost this exclamation. But you, you are to be feared. This is an awestruck response to the one who, when he comes in this resplendent glory, verse 4, glorious are you. When he comes, he will be more imposing and more intimidating than anything ever experienced in the history of the world. Look at verse 7. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? That's a rhetorical question that has a very simple answer. No one. Verse 8. From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still. Now, think about this. What would make it so that all over the earth, with all of the activity of humanity, I mean, right now, people are driving by and, and, and doing business, and all kinds of things are happening in the world. Can you imagine someone so massive, so imposing, that he utters judgment and everything comes to a standstill? And, and there's this awful realization of guilt because there is this awesome manifestation of the Holy One. And everyone suddenly perceives the purity of his wrath, the unquestionable righteousness of his character. And this stillness settles on all humanity everywhere. The earth feared at the end of Psalm 76, 8, and was still, verse 9, when God arose 
to establish judgment. And, and the beautiful thing here, the beautiful thing here, you're about to hear mercy. Look, look back at 74.22, where the afflicted are crying out in 74.22, Arise, O God, defend your cause. Now look back at 76 verse 9. When God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. God is trying to induce humility in us. And it is so merciful and kind of him to do so. Don't boast. Don't lift up the horn. Don't speak with an arrogant neck. Be humble so that you can be saved. God is going to save all the humble of the earth. Look at the parallel phrases there. Look back at 75.8. He pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Now look there at at 76 uh, verse 9. God is going to save all the humble of the earth. That's intentional. The psalmist wants you to see the contrast. All the wicked of the earth are going to be definitively, completely judged. And all the humble of the earth are going to be saved. What kind of humility is this talking about? This is the humility of someone who realizes that before the living God, I am damned on my own merits. But in his, in his unspeakable mercy, indescribable mercy, while we were yet sinners, he gave his own son to bear our penalty, to die our death so that we could have his life. I think it's Carl Henry. I'm sure other people have said this. They've said things like, it is impossible to be proud at the foot of the cross. The the cross says to every one of us, there is nothing good in you. There is nothing in you that is going to earn God's favor. Your only standing before the living God is the righteousness of the one who was penned to that cross in your place. Those are the humble of the earth. Those who come to Jesus and say, the only thing that I deserve from you, God, is wrath. But because of what you've done for me, I will trust you. Verse 10, the psalmist here in Psalm 76 speaks of the way that God is going to work all things together for good. He says here in verse 10, surely the wrath of man shall praise you. I think the wrath of man that is in view is is all the effort and energy that people invest in their anger against God in trying to escape him. Douglas Wilson once said that the, the argument from the atheist typically is there is no God. I hate him. And and what the what the psalmist is saying. What the psalmist is saying is that all that wrath directed against God is going to praise him. How is the wrath of God, how is the wrath of man going to praise God? Well, God is going to be praised for righteously doing justice upon those who hate him. Because it is going to be so evident to everyone how good he is, how worthy of praise he is, how just and true his judgments are. And so 
the wrath done upon the wrathful is going to result, the wrath of man is going to praise God. And then he goes on and he says, the remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. This word literally is gird. And in this world, when you gird up your loins, you gird up your garments, it's because you're going to work. And so I think this is communicating that God is going to take all the wrath of the wicked and he's going to use it as implements to help him accomplish his purposes. What are his purposes? He wants to show his righteousness. He wants to show that nobody is more powerful than he is. And so all the wrath of those who hate God is going to be like the belt that he straps on to gird up his robes, his flowing robes, so that he can go to work and show how powerful and awesome and almighty and unimpeachable and unquestionable he is. Surely the wrath of man will praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Now each, each of these psalms has a concluding statement. Look back at Psalm 75, verse 10. This is really similar to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10. All the horns of the wicked, the Lord says, I will cut off. Don't lift up that horn. Right? Verse, verses 4 and 5, he says it twice. To the wicked, don't lift up that horn. And this psalm indicates that there are going to people that there are going to be people that keep right on lifting up that horn. Don't be one of those people. Don't persist in your unrepentance against him. Don't persist in your rebellion against. Don't do it. Don't do it. You will not escape. You cannot overcome him. We're we're pleading with you this morning. If you're here and you're an unbeliever, there are people who love you. They don't want you to meet this fate. The reason they keep trying to get you to come to church, the reason they keep coming back to the gospel and all their conversations with you is because they don't want you to have your horn cut off, and it will certainly happen to you. The Lord says there in Psalm 75, verse 10, All the horns of the wicked I will cut off. And then look at what he goes on to say there in verse 10. But the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Now, the word righteous in Hebrew... It can be used in the plural, and often is. And, it, and it's translated in English when it's, when it's in the plural, righteous, because that's the way we speak in English. We can speak about the righteous one, or we can speak about the righteous, the, you know, the group. Of, it's singular right here. And I think that what's happening here is the psalmist, aware of 1 Samuel 2, verse 10, which says that the Lord is going to lift up the horn of his anointed, and he will give strength to his king, I think the psalmist is saying that anointed king in 1 Samuel 2 verse 10 whose horn is going to be lifted up, he's going to be the righteous one. And I think that's who's in view here. The Lord Jesus, his horn is going to be lifted up. And we're going to boast only in him. So how do we respond? Well, Psalm 76 at the end, look at Psalm 76 verses 11 and 12. Now this is an old covenant response. And this is an admonition that's a lot like uh, Psalm 2, uh, verses 10 through 12, where after announcing that the king from the line of David is certainly going to conquer, the psalmist warns the wicked. And he says, Therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in the way. Look at what he says here. 
Psalm 76, verse 11. Make your vows to Yahweh, your God, and perform them. Now, in the Old Testament, you you may remember in the book of Jonah, uh, Jonah gets on the boat with these Gentiles, and the wrath of God falls. And there's a great storm on the water. And they all know, we're about to perish. And Jonah's, and they, they come to Jonah, what, what have you done to us? And he explains the situation to them. And the Bible says the men, the, the Gentiles, the sailors, feared God. And they made vows. I think those guys are converted on the boat. That's what the psalmist is calling for here in Psalm 76, 11. Make your vows to Yahweh. If you're here and you're an unbeliever, you should make a vow like this. I mean, in the, in the Old Testament context, I think it would look something like this. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to humble myself, and I'm going to offer the, the required sacrifice for my cleansing. Well, we're not in the Old Covenant anymore. So today, make your vows to the Lord and pay them looks like this. I'm going to go to the cross, not literally, but metaphorically, and I'm going to recognize that a sacrifice I never could have offered has been offered on my behalf. And that the full penalty has been paid. And that by his blood, I have not only been cleansed, I've been redeemed, bought. And I owe him everything I am. So I'm going to live for him forever. Make your vows to Yahweh your God and perform them. And then let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. You could translate this, to him who is Fearsome. He is fearsome. And then it goes on, verse 12, with a sort of final warning. Him who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. That last word, that last word is saying that no royal descent is going to save anyone. Noble birth is not going to save you. If you're a prince or if you're a king and you have princes, that is not going to help you against God. The only thing that's going to help you is for you to fear him. For you to turn from all the things that he has said, I will judge you for that. And for you to do like Psalm 2 calls you to do, to kiss the Son, the Son of God, Jesus to submit to him, to bow the knee to him and to let him claim you as his own, one who has been humbled by the living God, freed from transgression, cleansed from all unrighteousness, clothed with the very righteousness of Christ and sealed for eternal life. If you'll turn from your sin and trust in Christ, all of that will be true of you. That is glorious good news. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would mark our gatherings with your presence. And Lord, we pray that you would make us people who come before you with open hands. Lord, make us those who don't go through the motions when we have this prayer of confession in our worship service. Lord, make us those who, when we come together and we pray this prayer of confession, someone leads us in this prayer, we open our hearts to you. 
And we acknowledge all the blackness and all the evil that has come out of us. And we beseech you for forgiveness. And we claim only Christ. And Lord, make us those who who live like we've experienced you. Make us those whose mannerisms don't communicate pride. Make us those whose actions, make us those who never lift up the horn. And Lord, if our hearts boast, make us like Paul, who said, far be it from me that I should boast, except in the cross. Make it so, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.